Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about a free three-act worksheet to help you structure your story. Whether you're a plotter or a pantser, a novelist or short fiction writer, this three-act worksheet will help you navigate your material and even begin each new story with a better plan. Download yours at nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Stop getting stuck in the middle of your draft. Go grab this free worksheet, nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Raise your hand if you've spent weeks, months, maybe even years writing your story only to get stalled midway through your draft. So you start another story only to become stalled again, or the draft you've been writing for the past two years keeps morphing and changing and you have this feeling it might just go on and on and on and you'll never finish it. But what if I told you there was a way to rein in and focus your material and create a story that doesn't have readers drifting off, but riveted all the way through? This is part two of a three-part series, Beyond the First Draft. I created this mini-series to give you more direction in moving your work in progress forward or revise the one you already have so that your story doesn't languish on your hard drive unfinished. And today's episode is all about how to craft a compelling, consistent point of view. So grab your work in progress and let's get started. Writer Unleashed is for you, a writer who has a story you want to bring onto the page and into the hearts and minds of readers. I'm Nancy Pinuccio, writer, editor, and writing coach, and each week we'll explore techniques, mindsets, and inspiration for writing stories readers can't put down. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's begin. Of all the things I see tripping writers up, point of view is the most common. It just may be the most misunderstood and poorly taught elements of story. Point of view is also one of the most important decisions you make about your story. It's an essential pillar that holds your story together and gives it focus, unity, and consistent rhythm. But because it's so misunderstood, it's frequently underdeveloped. Point of view is not about first or third person. I did that. I said that. I thought that. Or he, she did, said, thought that. When writers just focus on which person they're writing in, they often wind up with no point of view at all. There's more to it than which person is narrating, and there are multiple layers to point of view. So before we dive in, what do we mean by point of view? 
Point of view is what Doug Glover calls the mental modus operandi of the person telling or experiencing the story. Someone is seeing and reporting the action. Most often, this is your protagonist. If you're writing in first person, you, as the writer, are assuming that character's persona, you're taking it on. You're like an actor playing a role. If you're using third person narration, the perceiving subject may have access to only one character's thoughts and feelings or more. You don't want to have access to too many characters. I always recommend sticking to one character's thoughts and feelings, especially if this is your first go. So point of view is how much knowledge the perceiving subject has, whether it's a character in the story or someone outside of it. The Great Gatsby, for example, is told by a peripheral character. Nick Carraway is the narrator, but he isn't the protagonist, the main character. Yet we see the whole novel through his eyes. Lolita is told through the main character, Humbert's viewpoint. We are never in any other character's mind but his. In Revolutionary Road, the omniscient narrator stays mainly in Frank Wheeler's mind, but briefly goes into the mind of the theater audience as they watch Frank's wife April on stage. And then towards the end of the novel, The narrator goes into the thoughts and mind of April Wheeler, briefly. Point of view is the mind of your story. It's the one who's perceiving or experiencing what's happening. So now that we know what point of view is and what it isn't, let's get into how to construct a compelling, consistent point of view for your story. Number one, desire. Remember last week's episode, episode 71, when we talked about what your character wants? Desire is how your character hooks into the world of your story. It's what shapes your story's point of view. Your character comes into the story already wanting something. Now, it doesn't matter what your character wants, He or she just needs to have a passionate relationship with that desire. You want to make that desire concrete and simple at the outset. Jim wants to keep his teaching job. Anna wants to be with Vronsky. Humbert wants Lolita. Laura wants to be a mother. A passionate relationship. Now, by passionate It could be love, but it could also be fear, it could be anger, it could be jealousy. Whatever your character wants, it should feel like their survival depends on getting it. It may be physical survival, but it could also be emotional survival, career survival, financial survival. Everything you include, whether it's a job or profession, your character's social status or 
any life circumstance, everything should connect with his or her desire in some significant way. Your character must be in ardent pursuit of his or her desire. But it's not just what your character wants, it's why he or she wants it. This is where number two, significant history comes in. Significant history is background information that tells the story of how your character arrived in the story wanting what he or she wants. This is most often referred to as backstory or flashback. Now, what makes it significant is its relationship to your main character's concrete desire and the current situation. Here are some examples. In Revolutionary Road, we get some history into Frank Wheeler's childhood and his perception of his parents, particularly his father. Now, this helps us understand why he's so torn between staying in a job he describes as the dullest job on earth and his desire to flee to Paris to quit his job, which is his wife's burning desire. In Lolita, we get the story of Humbert's first childhood love, Annabelle, who died of typhus. This helps us understand his obsession with 11-year-old Lolita. Now, any history that does not relate directly to your character's desire is extraneous. This is where the story turns flabby, the reader tunes out, the reader starts to get bored or loses focus. It's where they most often stop reading. Do you see why getting clear on what your character wants is so important? Everything leads back to your character's desire. Now, significant history can be brief, but it should repeat through references, expansions, and variations. Now, these repetitions give your story rhythm. It gives your story a memory. So look to how significant history is expressed in your favorite novels. How often is it repeated? With what variations and what new insight expansions does it give you? Now, once you have your main character's desire and the significant history in place, you can start to imagine how your character will react as new situations arise. By the way, this is why I don't recommend outlining before you explore your main character. Okay, so we have desire, what your character wants, and significant history, why your character comes into the story wanting what he or she wants. Okay, on to number three, language. Where is the language coming from? The points of view that keep us outside a character require the narrator to use his language, not necessarily the characters. Again, The Great Gatsby is using a peripheral character's language, not the protagonist's language. The points of view that allow us to be inside a character require the narrator to use the character's language 
at least some of the time. Here's an example from Revolutionary Road, where the omniscient narrator is outside the characters, but using his own language. Then the fight went out of control. It quivered their arms and legs and wrenched their faces into shapes of hatred. It urged them harder and deeper into each other's weakest points, showing them cunning ways around each other's strongholds and quick chances to switch tactics, faint and strike again. In the space of a gasp for breath, it sent their memories racing back over the years for old weapons to rip the scabs off old wounds. It went on and on. Now, if you're writing from your character's language, keep this in mind. Your character thinks and speaks in a way that reflects his or her passionate attachment to life, desire, and significant history. So everything your character notices is anchored in his or her consciousness. As Charles Baxter once said, when people look at things, things look back. So if your character's a painter, she wouldn't be describing things in terms of sailing metaphors, right? For example, the main character in Margaret Atwood's Cat's Eye is an artist revisiting her hometown of Toronto for a retrospective of her work. And here's how she describes her town as she revisits it now as an adult. There are fountains up and down this roadway now and squared off beds of flowers and new peculiar statues. I follow the curve around the Parliament building with its form of squatting Victorian dowager, darkish pink, shorts huffed out, stolid. The flag I could never draw, demoted to the flag of a province, flies before it, bright scarlet, with the Union Jack in the top corner and all those impossible beavers and leaves encrusted lower down. The new national flag flutters there as well, two red bands and a red maple leaf rampant on white, looking like a trademark for margarine of the cheaper variety or an owl kill in snow. So the way she describes what she observes is very visual, very much like a painting. There's color and images and shapes. She's even referencing her earlier failed attempt at drawing the flag. Let's say your character is a child who's dealing with trauma or upheaval. The objects she notices will be slanted to show what she's feeling in that particular moment. Here's an example from A Crime in the Neighborhood. Now, the original version from the book is written in first person, but I'm changing this example from first person to third just to show you that you don't have to use first person to use your character's language and that whatever person you write in, it has virtually nothing to do with point of view. Here's the excerpt. She noted the worn patches in the hallway's oriental runner, the scuff marks on the stairs, the scorch 
at the back of the lampshade in the living room. The screen was coming away from the screen door in one corner, curling away from the metal frame like a leaf. The volume control knob had fallen off the hi-fi, leaving a forked metal bud. Stephen had spilled India ink on the sofa, and if you turned over the left cushion, you found a deep blue stain shaped like a moose antler. She had never realized their house contained so many damaged things. So where is the language coming from? Okay, here's an exercise to help you practice point of view. I want you to write a love scene. It could be serious or comic, but I want you to write it from a limited, omniscient viewpoint. Confine yourself to objective observation and the thoughts and feelings of one character. Here's the twist. Make this character believe that the other character is in love with her or him, while the external actions make it clear to the reader that this is not the case. So let's recap. Point of view is the mental modus operandi of the person telling or experiencing the story. Someone is seeing and reporting the action. This is most often your protagonist, but you have to create that perceiving subject. Point of view is made up of three main constructs. Number one, desire. Your main character should have a passionate relationship with what he or she wants and pursue it ardently. Remember, your character will spend the rest of your story or novel going after what he or she wants. So they have to feel like their survival is at stake. Now, this could be physical survival, of course, but it could also be emotional survival, spiritual survival, or financial survival. Number two, significant history. This is background information that tells the story of how your character came into the story wanting what he or she wants. Now, what makes it significant is it's directly related to your character's desire and the current situation that's unfolding in this moment, in this scene. And number three, language. Where is the language coming from? Your character thinks and speaks in a way that reflects his or her passionate attachment to life, his or her desire and significant history. So everything your character notices is anchored in his or her consciousness. What would your character observe or notice in any particular moment, and how would they slant the details? So there you have it. I want to leave you with these words of wisdom from Valerie Minor. As with most elements of craft, point of view has no rules, just intriguing and sometimes perplexing 
possibilities. We can temporarily borrow a map from a fellow writer, but the real adventure of point of view doesn't begin until we strike out on our own and trek cross-country discovering new territory, listening for elusive voices, and observing the angles of those shadows. All right, my friend, coming up next week, we're continuing with our Beyond the First Draft miniseries with an episode on structure. Here, we're going to take what you have so far and explore how you can use it to organize your story material. We'll explore what two things each scene must have in order to bring your story to life, plus a new way to approach writing hook sentences that create drama right on the sentence level. It's all happening here next week, same time, same place. See you there. Till then, keep writing, and I'll talk to you soon.